Dear listener, it's a great joy that you choose to join me. This is Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Please keep tuned to this station until the end. I'm your presenter, Samuel Mangi. This is your favorite new life program with interesting segments just for you. Patron will be having the family of segment by Maureen Kwamboka. Today, she'll talk about marriage, family, and society. Thereafter, we'll be having a Bible segment by Brother Steve Rundu. Today's topic is about biblical stewardship. Before that, here is a song, Zamani Zanuhu by Silver Court Singers. Oh, 
that you've been blessed with that lovely song. Thank you for staying tuned. Let us now prepare to listen to Maureen Kwamboka. Welcome, Maureen. Dear listener, welcome to today's Family Life program. I am Maureen Komboka. Today we are going to talk about marriage, family, and society. Who marries whom? How is the choice made? These are very important questions that we must answer. People usually marry persons they love, but they also marry for a variety of other reasons. Economic security, societal expectation, family pressures, and prestige considerations. In very general terms, a person tends to marry someone like himself socially. The choice may be made by the marital patterns or by their families or jointly, and this will depend upon the particular society involved or upon the particular individual in the society. Those who are most like each other socially usually belong to the same nationality, religious group, economic level, and will thus be ideal mates. Usually, people think that similar backgrounds tend to make happier families. Seeking a mate from within one's own group seems to give the individual security. It is also easier for the individual and their families to meet and arrange such a marriage. Those who intend to marry find that there is greater compatibility within one's own social group because people who belong to the same group are likelier to interact, and in interaction, to develop similar values and attitudes. They may even have the same ideas about outsiders who do not belong to their same group. However, there is another side to marriage that is far more important. One can marry from his own social group and yet be unhappy. Marriage is a partnership and it must be considered in the light of what God has instituted. The scriptures give varied admonitions and counsel in regard to marriage and this must be adhered to if one expects to be happy. Whatever meaning people assign to marriage, a believer views it as a strong bond, a challenging commitment in the fullest sense of the word. It is a commitment to life itself, to society, and to the dignified, meaningful survival of the human race. It is a commitment that married partners make to one another as well as to God, It is the kind of commitment in which they find mutual fulfillment and self-realization, love and peace, compassion and serenity, comfort and hope. It is not worthy that the religious provisions of marriage apply to men and women equally. For example, if celibacy is not recommended for men, it is equally as for women. 
This is in recognition of the fact that women's needs are equally legitimate and are seriously taken into consideration. In fact, the scriptures regard marriage to be the normal, natural course for women just as it is for men. Both the Torah and the Injil, as well as the Quran, give similar counsel with reference to this most important institution. Listen to these verses from the different scriptures. Wed not idolatresses till they believe, for lo, a believing bond woman is better than an idolatress, though she please you, and give not your daughters in marriage to idolaters till they believe. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness? Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife. Husbands, love your wives. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And they, women, have rights similar to those of men, over them in kindness, and men are a degree above them. Allah is mighty, wise. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife has no power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband has no power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again, that certain tempt you not for your incontinency. And of his signs is this, he created for you maids from yourself, that ye might find rest in them, and he ordained between you love and mercy. Lo, a rain indeed are potent for folk who reflect. Because religions consider marriage a very serious commitment, they prescribed certain measures to make the marital bond as permanent as humanly possible. The parties must strive to meet the conditions of proper age, general compatibility, reasonable support, goodwill, free consent, and selfish guardianship, honorable intentions, and judicious discretion. When the parties enter into a marital contract, the intention must be clear to make the bond permanent, free from the casual and temporary designation. For this reason, Trial marriages, term marriages, and all marriages that appear experimental, casual, or temporary are forbidden in all scriptures. With piety as the basis of mate selection and with the earnest satisfaction of the conditions of marriage, the party should be well on the way to a happy and fulfilling married life. However, the scriptures go much further than this in setting the course of behavior for husbands and wives. The consummation of marriage creates new roles for the parties concerned. Each role is a set of equitable, proportionate rights and obligations. The role of the husband evolves around the moral principle that is his solemn duty to God to treat his wife with kindness, honor, and patience, to keep her honorable. The role of the wife is summarized in the verse we have just quoted that women have rights even as they have duties according to what is equitable. It must be remembered that to gain proper understanding of the marriage relation is the work of a lifetime. Those who marry enter a school from which they are never in this life.
to be graduated. However, carefully and wisely, marriage may have been entered into. Few couples are completely united when the marriage ceremony is performed. The real union of the two is wedlock, is the work of the after years. The early months of marriage are usually characterized by a high degree of euphoria, a continuation of ecstasy of the first few months when the whole of life tends to be suffused with erotic pleasure. The newly married individuals continue to widen the range of their personal contact. During this time of exploration, which began in the engagement period, the habit system of the two individuals must adjust to new situations arising out of the fact that they are now a couple. The euphoria of the early months subsides for the sound reason that people cannot continue indefinitely to live on a high emotional pitch. Conflict inevitably emerges. It is intensity depending upon several factors in the personalities involved. The adjustment of personality to the routine of marriage involves far-reaching changes and usually some frustration. Patterns of release and escape therefore make their appearance. After a time, marriage interaction tends to slow down to a more tolerable interplay characteristics of settled married folks. Of a settled married folks, remember that as life with its burden of perplexity and care meets the newly wedded pair, the romance with which imagination so often invests marriage disappears. Husband and wife learn each other's character as it was impossible to learn it in their previous association. This is the most critical period in their experience. The happiness and usefulness of their whole future life depend upon their taking a right course now. Often they discern in each other unsuspected weakness and defects, but hearts that love, now united, will discern excellencies also herefore to unknown. Let all seek to discover the excellencies rather than the defects. Often it is our own attitude, the atmosphere that surrounds ourselves, which determines what will be revealed to us in another. Affection may be as clear as crystal and ambitious in its purity, yet it may be shallow because it has not been tested and tried. Make God first and last and best in everything. Constantly behold him, and your love for him will daily become deeper and stronger as it is submitted to the test of trial. And as your love for him increases, your love for your spouse will grow deeper and stronger. The married couples must remember that though difficulties, perplexities and discouragements may arise, let neither husband nor wife harbor the thought that their union is a mistake or a disappointment. They should determine to be all that it is possible to be to each other and should in every way encourage each other in fighting the battles of life. They should endeavor constantly to study how to advance the happiness of each other and learn to have mutual love and mutual forbearance. If they do this, then marriage, instead of being the end of love, will be as if it were the very beginning of love. In the family, all should cultivate patience by practicing patience. By being kind and forbearing, true love may be kept warm in the heart and qualities will be developed that God will approve. Husbands and wives, should never try to compel each other to do as they wish. They cannot do this and retain each other's love. Manifestation of self-will will destroy the peace and happiness of the home. Never should husbands and wives make their married life one of content. One of continuation. If this is done, both will be unhappy.
On the other hand, both should practice kindness in speech and gentleness in action. And learn to give up one's own wishes. Both should learn how to watch their words because words have a powerful influence for good or for ill. They should learn never to allow sharpness to come into their voices but bring into their united life the fragrance of kindness. There are many who regard their expression of love as weakness and they maintain a reserve that repels others. This spirit checks the current of sympathy. As the social and generous impulses are repressed, they wither and the heart becomes desolate and cold. We should beware of this error. Love cannot long exist without expression. Let not the heart of one connected with you starve for the want of kindness and sympathy. In the family, let each give love rather than exact it. Cultivate that which is noblest in yourselves and be quick to recognize the good qualities in each other. The consciousness of being appreciated is a wonderful stimulus and satisfaction. Sympathy and respect encourage the striving after excellence, and love itself increases as it is stimulates to nobler aims. The reason there are so many hard-hearted men and women in our world is that true affection has been regarded as weakness and has been discouraged and repressed. Too many cares and burdens are brought into our families and too little of natural simplicity and peace and happiness is cherished. There should be less care for what the outside world will say and more thoughtful attention to the members of the family circle. There should be less display and affection of worldly politeness and more tenderness and love, cheerfulness and courtesy. Among the members of the household, many need to learn how to make home attractive, a place of enjoyment. Thankful hearts and kind looks are more valuable than wealth and luxury, and contentment with simple things will make home happy if love be there. Thank you for listening. I have been Maureen Kombo. that you have enjoyed that family life segment. This is a new life program coming to you from Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Do not forget to send us your thoughts concerning this program to the producer, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 42276-00100, Nairobi, Kenya. Our email address is awrnairobi at ek.adventist.org. Let us now hear from Silver Cod Singers with the song Omobusuri. Omobusuri kabusuri
Thank you once again for staying tuned to our station. It is time for the Bible segment. Brother Steve, welcome and bless us with the word. What is biblical stewardship? When you hear the word stewardship, what comes to your mind? If you're thinking of the church, stewardship probably makes you think of money management or debt reduction or even upcoming building campaign. If you're thinking of politics, business, asset management or real estate investment, stewardship probably calls to mind ideas like environmental protection, energy conservation, fiscal accountability, corporate social responsibility, shareholder responsibility, capital management, philanthropic responsibility, or property upkeep. Stewardship is also frequently mentioned in the arena of social transformation and the Christian's responsibility toward those who are poor, abused, disabled, neglected, widowed, or orphaned. To be sure, stewardship is a term with a wide variety of meanings. But what is biblical stewardship? Okay, while most, if not all, Christians incorporate the term stewardship into their discussions about Christian responsibility, the definitions and understandings vary greatly across denominational and theological traditions. Some think tithing is the essence of stewardship. Others think embracing a lifestyle of simplicity and fragility in the basic stance of a biblical steward. Some say that biblical stewardship is synonymous with caring for the marginalized, with giving or with the spread of the gospel. Each of these views are essential components of biblical stewardship, but each of its own falls shy of capturing the full panoramic vision of the privilege and responsibility of stewardship illuminated in the Bible. At no time in Scripture do we ever read about God relinquishing his ownership of anything he created. If we read Psalms chapter 24 from verse 1 all the way to 2, it will remind us, and I quote, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. God's sovereign right to his creation is further enforced by Psalm chapter 50 from verse 10 to verse 12. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine for the world is mine, and all that is in it. God reminds us of his continued ownership over everything he has set in motion in at least four ways. God spoke all things, seen and unseen, into existence. Two, God maintains a position of authority over creation. Three, God exercises discretionary control over creation. And four, God commissions stewards to enact his will. God is not the who of stewardship. We are managing for the living God. Other people or organizations may benefit along the way as we become effective stewards, but our primary responsibility is to the one who entrusted us all things into our care. The significance of stewardship. God's word is filled with examples of various kinds of stewards, effective and ineffective, faithful and unfaithful, wise and unwise. It describes the stewards and consequences associated with the quality of their stewardship. 
it conveys the mercy, grace, and justice of God as he deals with the stewards. It points us to both the privilege and the responsibility of stewardship. It details specific stewardship expectations and outlines broad stewardship principles. Now, stewardship is a central theme throughout Scripture, like the fundamental Christian themes of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. The subject of stewardship is woven throughout Scripture. God has called you to be His steward. You have been commissioned as a manager in trust of a God's estate. Brothers, when God created us, human beings, Adam and Eve, He put them to be in charge. He gave them dominion over everything He had created. That was the beginning of stewardship. If you look at stewardship as a trustee relationship between you and God, you being the manager in trust over God's estate, then that will be the biblical look or the biblical view on stewardship. We will be going through a series of stewardship and this was to introduce what is really stewardship in terms of biblical thought. Let us have a prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name. Father, you are the creator of all that we have, the earth, the seas beneath, the skies above, and all that is in it, including us. Father, teach us how to be good stewards. Teach us how to be responsible with our lives, to be responsible and accountable with the monies that you've given to us, to be responsible and accountable for the time that you've given unto us. In everything, Lord, let us learn how to return to you what belongs to you and to use the remaining effectively, for we are just but managers in trust for your estate. Teach us how to be good stewards, for we have prayed, trusting and believing in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are grateful for the time you have accorded us today. Let us meet right here at Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Don't forget to send us your views, comments, or questions to the producer, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 42276-00100, Nairobi, Kenya. Our email address is awrnairobi at ek.adventist.org. I've been a presenter, Samuel Mag. Until then, stay safe, stay blessed.
Ni garar se la ne 